Welcome to episode 58 of Between the Times, a podcast of Christ Church Presbyterian in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, my name is John Payne. I'm sitting here with my good friends Ross Hodges and Gabriel Williams. Hope you guys are doing well today. Pretty good. Good. We are uh, here to talk about a very non-controversial topic, and that is uh, the topic of race and social justice and the social gospel. Uh, so this easy, is, uh, easy. Yeah, yeah, no problem. <laughs> no problem. And uh, in light of the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's uh, death and uh, considering his own life here recently with Martin Luther King Day, uh, we wanted to talk, especially directing questions at Gabe uh, as a Reformed African American believer, uh, we wanted to uh, ask him some questions and get his thoughts uh, because he's very well thought out in, in terms of these things and how uh, these important issues relate uh, to the Christian life and to the church. And so uh, the first, uh, first of all, Gabe, I wanted to just ask you uh, just to tell us a little bit about uh, your background and a lot of people think they, they understand racism and segregation and uh, they may have grown up in uh, white evangelical homes in upper class neighborhoods, and really, uh, all they know is kind of the the concept and not mm-hmm. the reality. And I'd just like to ask you to tell our listeners a bit about uh, your own family background, and then what some of the positive things that you've seen that have come out of uh, the movement that uh, Luther King led and uh, some ways that things have changed that have been positive and, and perhaps even connected to some of the things going on in the churches today that are that are positive. Yeah, sure. So in terms of my own background, so uh, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, and my family, my mother's side of my family is primarily in New York, Philadelphia sort of area. And so I would describe our family on my mother's side to be very much a pro-civil rights sort of family. The sort of people who would have either marched in the streets with King mm-hmm. in terms of grandfather's generation or would have been helping to financially support such things. And so when I, as I was growing up, uh, one of the things that I was constantly taught was to remember the actual movements that did occur. So not just Martin Luther King's movement, but we also did a lot of reading on Malcolm X as well because his movement was equally as popular. Um, there was also a lot of black nationalism in my home, so some listeners may know of who Marcus Garvey is, and that's one of the men that I've read extensive biographies on. And one of the things that occurred was that we moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and as a northerner, we have our stereotypes of the South. <laughs> <laughs> and so we moved down here, and one of the things that was basically uh, kind of was raised is to kind of still understand the either uh, visible racism of the South or perhaps the low-key kind of residual racism. But that was kind of the paradigm I grew up in. So um, in terms of my rest of the background, so uh, from my elementary school kind of going up, I went to Morehouse College. And so Morehouse College is a pretty well-known historically black college and university. And at Morehouse College, you get the same types of things presented about what is the ideal picture of a black man or the Morehouse man. And you want to talk to me about that, it's a whole lot more <laughs> about that about. I want to hear more. But, uh, <laughs> but in essence, that's my basic background. And so 
uh, I was raised with a very strong sort of civil rights consciousness growing up, and it was reinforced uh, during my Morehouse days and also reinforced uh, just because the rest of my family is still very much civil rights oriented. Um, in terms of kind of transitions to today, um, I have some family members who would basically say that not much has changed since the 70s. So yeah. there are some families who hold that position, and they would just say that racism has just morphed into a new form. Mm. I have some family members who would say a whole lot of progress has happened uh, over the last 40 to 50 years in terms of race relations in the country. And then I have kind of everything in the middle. Mm. And so it's one of those kind of ongoing discussions. So when we go to family reunions in my family, what we discuss is politics, economics, race, and social justice. <laughs> That's family reunion conversation for us. And so it comes up all the time. So I'm, I'm forced to kind of think through things and to kind of hear people's experiences. And... Yeah, that's kind of my own uh, personal background about these things. I'd love to come to the next get together game. It'd be very interesting. To oh, hear those you're welcome. <laughs> so, so Gabe, where would you be on that spectrum of uh, how you think things have developed? And as you are a student of history and have mm-hmm. you know read many of these biographies and uh, are someone who has a, a keen eye for the culture, how, mm-hmm. how would you personally come down on that spectrum? I think I would separate into categories. And so if I was mm-hmm. to uh, look at, say, financial and economic, uh, I would say it's clear growth. So there's substantial progress, financially speaking. And that doesn't mean that there still isn't a clearer gap between, you can say, the average African-American and the average uh, white Asian or whatever in the country. Mm-hmm. But what it is saying uh, at the essence is that the types of barriers that existed at the time of the 60s in terms of uh, education, in terms of getting to be a CEO of a company, owning companies, clearly the growth is clear and obvious. And uh, If you look at Forbes list, you'll see multiple black billionaires on that list. And or government positions. Or government positions. Senate, House, yeah. President. So that sort of yeah, that sort of stuff is clear uh, in my eyes in terms of the actual you can say financial economic improvement. If we're going to discuss personal interactions, uh, I think you're basically in the same types of things you saw probably in the seventies mm. when it comes to interpersonal things. So that means on any given day, uh, you can walk up to someone, uh, and if this is the South. If this was Jim Crow era, you can basically be as free as you want to say anything you want to a black person, and you have the states and the government to protect you. Here, there's still, in, in today's day, that protection is not as clear, but you'll still see residual stereotypes from the 70s reappearing in people's thoughts and minds. Mm. And so, this occurs not just with, you can say, uneducated Southerners, it's also true up the education ladder. Mm. And so, basic quick example is um, most people generally ask what I do for a living, and it is still surprising to people that I'm a professor. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I still have people on college campus who think I'm a student. 
<laughs> not been there for five years. Because you have a baby face. Yeah, yeah. But I clearly <laughs> don't speak like an eighteen-year-old. Yeah. I don't act like. But that's that's a residual issue that comes from the fact that most people still assume that most black people are uneducated, and therefore, if you're here, you must be a student. Those sort of residual attitudes still exist, sure. by and large, mm. and that's when you get into issues of church discussions, because a lot of what you observe is the sort of residual stereotyping and just sort of hostility that existed in the 70s reappears in different forms and different fashions, uh, basically within interpersonal relationships within the church, particularly... Mm. If you're in the South, that isn't to say things haven't improved, but if you wandered into a church and just kind of talk to people, you may actually hear some pretty awful things from the 70s reappear. Of, mm-hmm. You may even hear people still talk about the curse of Ham, apparently. So you'll still get some of that that <laughs> reappears. Um, and that happens interpersonally. And so in some sense, you can say the progress has been amazingly good from a kind of barrier standpoint, but now we're dealing with attitudes and just basically uh, misconceptions both ways. And mm-hmm. one of the things I like to say openly is the misconception occurs both ways. There are mm-hmm. still in today's culture, white people who think black people still have the same sort of uh, hostility and deficiency of that era. Mm-hmm. And then you still have black people who think that white people are just masking their racism until they get a chance to act on it. Mm. Curves both ways. Mm. And that's one of those things that usually isn't spoken about openly, that Mm. it does go both ways, but we're still kind of working through those sort of things, and it'll be there for probably a little while. From from my perspective, some of the reading I've done, some of the Mm -hmm. observing I've done, Certainly, uh, particularly uh, 50 years ago and, and, and prior, you had this, uh, this kind of racism, particularly in the South, which, mm-hmm. which viewed African Americans as inherently worse or, mm-hmm. or inferior mm-hmm. to a white person because of the color of their skin. Yeah. It seems that there's something going on today that's become more aggressive <coughs> where... Uh, where African Americans, um, on the kind of what I would call kind of a social justice war path, mm-hmm. uh, would actually see white people as inherently uh, inferior to black people be- mm-hmm. because their whiteness makes them an oppressor. Oh, okay, I got gotcha. you. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so there's something. If you are white, you've got a problem because you are an oppressor, and if you have you know, I've heard it said and, and insinuated that if you have money in the bank, that you should question where that money has come from if you have white skin. Because uh-huh. if you take it back, yeah, right, yeah. Uh, there's going to be some connection to slavery or, or these kinds of things. So uh, I, I throw that out there to say that, uh, particularly when we're doing these things from a Christian perspective, there are a lot of hateful things that people are saying and people are, are embracing in mm-hmm. terms of looking at others with with really hatred and suspicion. Blacks mm-hmm. towards whites, yeah. whites towards blacks. And it has no place in the church. Agreed. Um, do, you, do you see, um, when you look at kind of the, the, the generally, I know we're talking in generalities here, at least initially, 
the um, the discussion going on, say, you know, through uh, uh, networks like the Gospel Coalition or, or other Christian kind of parachurch organizations that are mm-hmm. trying to help bring healing and blessing uh, to to this this issue of, of racism or mm-hmm. you know, latent uh, uh, racism. Uh, do you see things, positive things happening in that regard? Yeah, I think I think the most positive thing that has obviously happened since this topic has been brought up is that it's addressing very real stereotypes that have exist and primarily concerning black people in this case but i would extend that beyond black people because again this country isn't white or black um you actually have other people who live here (laughs) (laughs) so um the same thing occurs among (laughs) this is why you're (laughs) I mean, you actually have, uh, at least in terms of even reform circles, you also have a lot of Asian Americans who are now part of reformed churches. And if you think the stereotyping of black people is a big deal, you need to talk to some Asian Americans. You'll hear some stuff that just boggles your mind Mm -hmm. that goes, again, right back to the 60s view of Chinese and Korean Americans, what they really were like, or even the visceral hostility that people may have with still Japanese Americans that dates back to the Second World War sure. and sort of, sort of stuff. So there's all that sort of stuff is still there. And I think the most important thing that's happened is that you get confronted with the fact that the unity of the church is basically being undermined by cultural problems that needs to kind of be brought out in a very real way. The question is whether or not the solution is worse than the current problem. Mm-hmm. And that is always the discussion. The discussion is not whether or not these sort of interpersonal hostilities exist. I don't know anyone who denies that. The question is, you do a cost-benefit analysis, is the current solutions being presented worse or better than the current problem? And So, so this is so helpful. So helpful. So sin no longer reigns in the life of the Christian or in the church. But, but sin there. remains. Mm-hmm. It's still there. The solution mm-hmm. can often be uh, worse than than the problem itself. Yeah. If if we are not careful, what solution is often posed then uh, by a lot of our evangelical, even some reformed brothers and sisters, in regards to this sin of 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 racism? Um, or suspicion that is connected to that. Unpack that for us, Gabe. Well, if I was to just kind of, you know, scan the sort of stuff I hear uh, from people, part of the solution is basically the same type of solution that's offered culturally. Meaning, when there was a serious problem of racism within Jim Crow South, which it was, the question is, what were the solutions offered? And the solutions that came were basically political in orientation. So you had Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act come out that were basically a overarching government enforcing this down to kind of, at least from a top-down approach, fix it. And then the other third idea, which is still controversial today, is the affirmative action quota idea. And that mm. has been going on since the 70s. And you'll get a whole lot of debate from people on how well that works. It doesn't. <laughs> but you get a whole lot of debate 
on how that has gone down. But if you take those three ideas and think about what the solutions are, they're basically the church version of those three ideas, where the first is if you are a denomination that has some form of hierarchy, the idea is to go to the highest part of the hierarchy and press it downward. And that means, in that case, figure out some sort of either direct overtures, laws that can restrict uh, the appearance of racism from a top-down approach. That's the first approach. Second approach is to get more people in power to vote for such a things. And so, again, overarching, pushing down. And then the third approach is some form of a quota system. And that's always offensive to whoever hears that. And... I don't really have any other way to say it than what it is. The question at this point would be not just to consider African Americans as to um, perhaps choose one over the other for the sake of demonstrating your, uh, you can say, deliverance from racism in some sense. And that's true also for Asian Americans as well. To prove you're free of racism, then choose one over the other. Now, again, you may not like to call that a quota system, but if it walks like a duck, if it talks like a duck, it's not a cow, if it's it, a duck. <laughs> it walks like a quota, it talks like a quota. It's a quota. <laughs> Can I quota you on that? <laughs> so. So, so the solution is, is greater than the problem, often in the culture and the church, Especially when the, the, the church accommodates and and and, and uh, parrots the culture and their solutions, but the solution is worse than the problem because it is trying to legislate morality. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's trying to put in place rules and laws that are going to get us whipped into shape and doing and thinking and believing the right things. Mm-hmm. But what does that say about our our belief in the gospel. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sure that the, well, I'm not sure. I know the response to that would be that uh, the gospel has corresponding implications that extend beyond sure. just the simple sure. uh, repent and believe, and it goes down to concrete action. So that's Which is true. We that's believe. all complete Absolutely. true statement. Yeah. And so we're, now we're arguing about application points here. And so. But really, uh, we aren't. <laughs> really, we aren't. It's a fundamental right. basis of which you get your application from, yes. obviously. Yeah. But if you're basically making the claim that this top-down kind of approach is an application of the gospel, then you now have to tell me what you believe the gospel is <laughs> at this point, because that now defines your discussion. But uh, yes. I, what I would essentially say is that there are some circumstances in which uh, that top-down approach has been useful in some way. So an example in the past would be seminaries. So there used to be a time that conservative seminaries seemed to have had a very clear uh, policy not to actually bring in uh, Asian Americans or African Americans into being seminary students. And then at the same time, it was to complain, why are all the black and Asian people liberals? Well, obviously, if you were a conservative seminary and you blocked a lot of people coming in, then you kind of you kind of get what you got in that case. Yeah. And so in one sense, there has been policies to simply say that you cannot have that sort of discriminatory practice sure. within seminaries. And 
part of the re good result of that is that you now have a lot more African Americans and Asian Americans that are actually going through conservative reform seminaries. So, one sense that's been a productive sense, but the difference between the seminary and the church is that the seminary is actually an institution that actually has that kind of overarching structure that actually dictates admissions. The church is not of the same exact nature as a seminary. Yeah. Uh, you actually join <laughs> an actual church from bottom up, so to speak. There's no really admission quota for you to be into a church, so to speak. So it's a it's a different institution. One is a parachurch institution, you mm -hmm. would say, and one is the actual divine institution that mm -hmm. the Lord is building up here. So to me, that would mean you, if you try to apply the same tactics, you're doing apples and oranges. Mm -hmm. You're confusing the institutions in this case. One of the um, things I was I was getting at, Gabe, is that these days you you know you you hear preaching mm -hmm. that is really devoid of of the gospel. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's focusing on on the fruit of the gospel or. Or really, sort of redefining the gospel as that which um, liberates uh, mm -hmm. from cultural ills, and uh, it's it's a kind of re redemption of the culture focus, which you can take whatever issue mm -hmm. or sin that you want to deal with, whether it's the abortion or or politics or mm -hmm. or racism or, or or sex trafficking or whatever. And you, you begin to have things like um, one great you know big Christian leader said a few years ago to a group of about twenty thousand young people at a conference. He said, "The mission of the church is the is now uh, I declare as God told me on the mountain or whatever because he said God told me that, yeah. that the mi new mission of the church is to uh, take down human sex trafficking." Oh. Now we would yeah. all agree that human sex trafficking is is one of the most horrible sins that can be committed on this earth. But is that the mission of the church? And uh, is our preaching to be uh, filled with exhortations to, uh, uh, to reform the culture and to redeem the culture without a clear explanation and application of, of the gospel of yeah. Christ uh, come into the world, born of a virgin, uh, living a perfect life, dying an atoning death, uh, rising victoriously from the dead, sitting at God's right hand, exercising his three offices, coming back one day. You know, it seems to me that one thing that the whole discussion on, on race and social justice has done is it has overwhelmed kind of the, the discussion and even overshadowed the mission of the church as to what it really is in terms of making true disciples. How would you how would you unpack that or, or respond to that? Some concerns that I've had. Um, again, this probably goes back to a much broader topic on your view of the kingdom of God. And if you kind of hold a two kings approach, then you basically know my answer to this is that you shouldn't conflate the church with the other city <laughs> in this case. And so the church has a particular sphere and a particular purpose and mission itself. And then you do not conflate what that is with what the state or the city of man is basically doing. So in that case, I'll just take a standard two kingdoms approach here. In terms of kind of piggyback on uh, what you mentioned here, 
I think there's at least a couple of things worth uh, emphasizing. Mm-hmm. So the first is that uh, part of good preaching of the gospel is a good application attached to it. And again, the application dictates is based upon what you believe the gospel is meant to do. If you believe that the one of the basic purposes of the gospel is to transform the sinner from spiritual death to spiritual life, and that he must live in a way worthy of that calling, then that means one of the most essential things you should be preaching, if you care about racism, is that you should be preaching on how to love your neighbor properly. And how that occurs varies depending upon your particular context. And that would basically be my first essential thing is if you know, and pastors know this, if you know your congregation, if you know that you have kind of a good old boys club going on at your church where there are people who would never be caught dead at all with their neighbors because they're black, you're the pastor. You can confront that head on and say, you are not living worthy of the gospel. Repent and believe. Yeah, let me just say that, Gabe for a minister to allow those kinds of attitudes and behaviors in our congregation is 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 incredibly irresponsible mm-hmm. and sinful. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, amen. Amen to that. And my belief is that there should be much more church discipline that's focused on a local level about these sort of problems. If you know you have congregants that hold these views and refuse to repent, you have, if you're the minister and you're one of the elders in your session, you have the authority to bring this up for charges of discipline mm. and treat it that way. If racism is a sin, which we all agree it is, that means the elders have responsibility to apply proper church discipline. If you know that a church in your local presbytery is not doing its job, you now have to charge the presbytery to apply the actual, you can say, court <laughs> system uh, and to actually apply church discipline. To me, a lot of these issues go down to local churches and presbyteries just not doing their job. They're doing the good old boy network. My second thing, and this kind of follows up with what you said, is if you believe that the church itself has a particular mission and it shouldn't be confused, that also means you need to have some venue in which you can actually discuss this. And so, I think it's very appropriate for parachurch organizations to actually talk about this sure. very openly. And there's been a lot of things in the PC that already does that. But the question becomes, are you going from the parachurch, which is helping the church to deal with issues, to the actual mission of the church? That's a different mm-hmm. sort of topic. But I think parachurches, if they do arise, you can call, talk about this Forcefully, you can bring up things that you observe in your local area that will actually directly impact the sort of relationships you have. And so I think parachurches have a great responsibility in a sense. If you care about uh, dealing with racist presuppositions or just kind of residual attitudes, I think parachurches are a great to do that. Just like we have parachurch organizations for theology, we have them for apologetics, we have them for creation, we have them for all sorts of topics that are of Christian concerns, you should have some parachurch stuff for issues of race and things of that nature because we know that this is still affecting your union to the church. So mm. I think that's a good use of what a good parachurch organization should do. So something a little controversial. So 
you know, <laughs> say at Christ Church Presbyterian, mm -hmm. uh, we're currently worshiping in Mount Pleasant. You know, mm -hmm. we may end up being downtown. We're sitting here downtown now in our offices, but we, you know, we would love to be down here one day. Um, but we're in Mount Pleasant. You walk into our church. Uh, there is uh, your black family. Mm -hmm. uh, another uh, black brother, um, Joseph Brown, who's been visiting with us. Uh, wonderful brother. And um, and then we have a, an Asian family. Uh, we, we have South Asian Indian man as a member of our church. But, you know, mostly we're white. Mm -hmm. uh, mostly the congregation is white. So... So if a person walks in there and thinks, you know, this church is, they must have some racism in it. It's, it's, it's not multi-ethnic. It's, uh, it's not really doing what the church is supposed to do. How, how do you, Gabe, respond to that, um, that accusation? <laughs> well, a couple things to say. Um, a person that at some point has to be honest with what their actual critique is. Is it multi-ethnic or multi-skin color? That's basically <laughs> the first thing you need to kind of say. Because basically what you said is I walked into church, I saw a bunch of similar faces and color, and I made a judgment upon what ethnic group they are. And where I'm from... Uh, if you tried that any other place, that's a straight-up racist sort of statement. You don't just look <laughs> at people in their face and just presume where they're from. People yeah. have all sorts of things in their background. Um, so my first basic statement would be, be honest with what you mean by multi-ethnic. Um, if you want a skin color issue to be an issue, then, yeah, it's a different question. Uh, I know you all probably don't care as much about this because, you know, most white people usually don't care about their own ethnic background for a reason. <laughs> but one of the things that I've learned since being at Christ Church is that there are a lot of people who are very proud of where their ancestors heritage, are from, yeah. their heritage. Mm -hmm. And so multi-ethnic could mean multiple European ethnicities. It could also mean multiple ethnicities from the vantage point of America. So again, this kind of depends on you defining it. My second basic point would be Racism is a pretty strong charge to put against mm. a group of people. You got to have some more evidence than just saying, I walked in and I see people who don't quite have different colors of skin, basically. It has to be a little more substantial than that because what you're basically now implying in that sense is that there's either some sort of official discrimination or residual kind of. Uh, discrimination that occurs within the members so you're basically creating a hostile environment for non uh, white people there and so my uh, first basic statement would be to kind of check yourself if you're making mm. that sort of value judgment mm. that quickly wouldn't it be an uncharitable assumption for me to walk into a black church an all black church <laughs> well we we know historically we can't even make that sort of judgment because of historical reasons sure no no but I'm of course sorry. i'm being sarcastic yeah yeah it, it, it would be an uncharitable <laughs> assumption for me to walk into a black church and think oh these people are racist they don't they don't love white people they don't like white people um i just think that we need to be so careful don't we about making uncharitable assumptions about churches about leaders that somehow because it doesn't look like you know revelation 7 uh, Revelation 5 uh, mm -hmm. in every single congregation that somehow we are 
just completely missing the mark and must have latent racism in our hearts. Yeah, and one of the ways that you know that someone's reading the Bible through a ethnic racial lens is that you see Revelation 7 to be a matter of race instead of saying these are the people God has saved. Right. So you're right. reading that incorrectly if you accent right. the colors rather than the salvation right. of the people. Yeah. That's, you know. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. Yeah, that's the point of that. Not, there's a black person, white person. Yeah. Indian, yeah. That's, <laughs> not, that's not the point yeah. of that passage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, um, exactly. Yeah, and, and one of the other things just to mention is that um, there's, again, a lot of reasons, and this is what a lot of modern sociologists study, not just in America, but in the UK and other places. There's a lot of reasons that a lot of ethnic groups don't tend to just hang around each other on a regular basis. And it's not all due to racism. Some of it's just due to basic comfort level. And so one of the basic things that comes out of this sort of thing is there's multiple reasons why people gather together or don't gather together. So an example would be, even if you had, for instance, a multi-ethnic church, it does not necessarily follow that those people live anywhere near each other. They don't necessarily live in the same neighborhood. Right. They can be coming in from different directions. And if you look at any sort of map of a city and did a demographic study, you'll basically note that basically it's not quite segregated, but you tend not to see this uniform mixture of people all over the place. You tend to see this part of the section tends to have a lot of um, Indians. This part of the section has a lot of Chinese. This has a lot of Koreans. This has a lot of black people. There's not necessarily racism implied there. It may just be a standard comfort level being around your own sort of people here. Right. I'm not saying that is a full reason of why these things exist, but you need to have more evidence to actually come to a conclusion about racism. And you don't just do that just by staring at a congregation, looking at the percentages, and saying they clearly aren't friendly because there'll be more people here. That also, again, tells me what you believe about yeah. Yeah. regeneration, effectual calling, and all that other yes. sort of stuff. That apparently, if you just preach the gospel, then if you preach the gospel rightly, then you will get people from each particular ethnic group coming together. That is up to God to basically do. Your responsibility is to be faithful and do what you're called to do. Yeah. And that may produce a multi-ethnic church in a light, in kind of, I guess, in the views of most Americans, or it may produce a church that isn't. Now, this is never a commentary towards a rural church because we know that it's very difficult to get a multi-ethnic rural church. It's never really the conversation here. Right. This is usually an urban question. Because the mm -hmm. assumption is that this is an urban-suburban issue and problem because who cares what's going on in rural areas? When we talk about multi-ethnic churches, we're really dealing with, I guess, urban-suburban problems that we perceive about people. And ultimately, when you kind of boil all this sort of stuff down here, if you're making that sort of charge against people, you need to have some sort of valid substantiation that you need to do. And so mm -hmm. it may be that after you've checked out the church for a period of time, you've heard conversations, you've seen the behavior of people, and you've gone through your due diligence, you can say, I see there's some actual open hostility here or yeah. at least something residual. But that meant you stayed around for a while to observe people. Yeah, that's good. It's not just a blanket sort of statement here. And again, kind of like what I said before, 
one of the issues is that there are people perhaps that can make that sort of assessment that perhaps you've been in the church for a while and you've kind of heard kind of off the record conversations about other people and if you hear it and don't if you hear these sort of things and it's sinful and you don't actually report or respond to it yeah you're covering up sin yeah. you are guilty and you need to repent and there needs to be a discipline matter and there needs to be confronted there but usually that's not what we're talking about usually we're basically doing both statistics on demography yeah that's right and you know I, i've heard some rhetoric um, recently about, um, you know, some, you know, as a, a well-known Christian singer who has divorced white evangelicalism, so-called, and um, as much helpful music and lyrics mm-hmm. that this individual has, has brought forth that has been so helpful, that that's a very unhelpful thing. And I understand what he's saying, but when, when I hear rhetoric about wanting to be with my people when i hear that 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 sounds so unhelpful and divisive because when i think of my people mm-hmm. i think of the williams i think of the hodges my I, I my people have all different color skin and yeah. backgrounds and and because my people are the church mm-hmm. and I would never think of my people as a group of white Northern Europeans, you know, that that like the same kind of wine or whatever. Um, (laughs) So uh, I wanted to finish with this, Gabe, and give you just the opportunity to encourage and exhort believers in terms of this, in in terms of this uh, very hot issue right now. What what would you want to tell our listeners? in terms of how to think rightly about the issue of race, <clears throat> social justice, the gospel, as as we seek to live our lives for the glory of God. I guess my uh, kind of closing thought on it would be to remember your chief allegiance and remember what you actually believe and, and press the application down. Your chief allegiance is to Christ, not to kind of cultural sort of pressures and phenomena going on. And when you say that, that also means that your chief allegiance is to the church. And that is because you are a new creation in Christ. The old man has passed away. You are now that new creation. Mm. That means your family, in essence, has changed a good bit. They don't look like you, act like you in any way, usually. But that is who you have been formed with and tied to. And so that means when you first think about these sort of topics here, you need to think about what your chief allegiance is. If you're reading and understanding the Christian faith from that kind of ethnic, racial sort of lens here, it's very, it's very often you're going to miss some of the more basic fundamental Christian doctrines and mm. what it means to be united to brothers and sisters who don't look or act like you. So that's your first basic sort of kind of... Uh, statement to think about is that you have brothers and sisters in Christ that have were that you were not raised with they're not your biological family mm-hmm. but you're both united to Christ Amen. and therefore you are closer to them spiritually speaking than the carnal people that you have a lot of familiarity with yeah. and that's something that we all realize and whenever we come to Christ that we have a lot more in common with the church member that basically grew up a thousand miles away from us than the family member who's unconverted. That's the reality Amen. of conversion. Amen. 
Second thing is to realize that because you are united to Christ, because these are your brothers and sisters, you have to begin to analyze your preconceptions and pre-beliefs about the people around you. And some of those can range, and this is, again, a little bit of introspection, Mm -hmm. but some of those can range from being something simple as, I'm in a church with someone and I just choose not to really talk to them because we just don't have a lot of natural things in common. Now, that's true within the same ethnicity or different ethnicities. But the reality is that you have to deal with some of those preconceptions that you have because if you just allow your cultural background to kind of dictate how you treat people in the church, you're going to be segregated. And that's basically what happens. And that's what we all observe today is that you have a lot of kind of cultural Christianity that's basically a mirror reflection of the culture you live around. And we all basically say that's nominal Christianity. It's not the true, living, vibrant faith that the scriptures teach. And so you got to deal with some of these misconceptions you grew up with. And most of the time it's very hard because most people would never claim that they are just like the 60s racists who would spray you with hoses in the street if they yeah. saw you yeah. and laughed at it while it happened on TV. No yeah. one really claimed that sort of thing. But there are all sorts of stereotypes we have of each other that if we kind of thought through, analyzed, actually inhibit our actual relationships. And that's really where we are. The question here is yes. how do we actually build these relationships? You have to basically at some point in fashion deal with those sort of preconceptions that are there and so on my end as being you know one of the black people in the church here i have a whole bunch of preconceptions because my own childhood and what i grew up in and that means if i keep my mind in that same kind of vantage point and do not actually befriend my christian brothers i'm the sinner i have sinned against my brother i am withholding fellowship Mm. i am the one that's actually causing a hostility but the same thing we're saying the way around if you or in the church, and you see brothers that don't look or act like you in terms of your ethnicity, and you kind of dodge them because you don't really know how to open the conversation, well, you're actually no longer united to them, functionally speaking. You're yes. dividing, you are avoiding yourself from real fellowship of your brothers. And so I think in a very real sense, that needs to be where your focus is. How is the actual relationships going in your local church? And then you know there are Christians around you who don't look like you. How's your relationship with your neighbors that are Christians that are not like you? Yeah. Do you basically dodge them because that's just not what we do in the South, for instance? Or are you actually opening your actual home up, opening yourself up? A lot of basic hospitality is breaking down those simple cultural barriers yes. that also occur. And a third thing, and this is just for elders, um, there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of heat, not a lot of light on the discussion. And so there are a lot of elders who will be in a position that you can actually um, address these issues in your local church based upon how you listen to conversations, how you observe interactions, how you hear off the record conversations. Don't be afraid to don't be afraid to call such things out and to mm-hmm. apply discipline. That's good. Uh, racism needs to be confronted to the person that you see it happening to not in the generic bulk way of white people right. being oppressed with the black people or Asian people or whatever. 
deal with the issues in front of you. And I guess my last encouragement is that uh, the work of a pastor is difficult enough. You don't really need to actually add to that sociologists, psychologists, and economists to that list of things that pastors <laughs> should be doing. The pastor is not the sociologist. His job is not to do in-depth research on the demographics of your area to investigate re- reasons why people are not fellowshipping. You don't have that background, and I hope you don't expect that from your pastor. He's not the economist. He's not going to be studying redlining and getting to understand how the various sorts of uh, local-scale financial factors affect the financial states of your minority congregants or congregants as a whole. He's not an economist. (laughs) He also isn't a psychologist. He can't read your mind and basically see your facial expressions, take your body language, and basically impute all sorts of things about you. He's neither of those things. He's a pastor. So you treat him as such. And so I guess my final conclusion for the pastors is to be don't embrace the cultural pressure to be their economist, their sociologist, their psychologist, and their social justice person. Your job is very much prescribed by scripture. You are to preach the word in season and out of season. Your job is to shepherd the flock of God whom the Lord has purchased with his very own blood. And your job is to, again, great commission, teach them all that has been commanded of the, uh, commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ, grow the flock up, and that's what the Lord Jesus will be judging you for. Mm, mm. So the culture has its own stuff, and that's because the culture is lost and confused. Yes. They're confused. We know that. Let them, in a sense, be confused about what they're supposed to be. Elders, you should know what your job is. Your job isn't all of this stuff combined together. Your job is prescribed. That's the ordinary means or work of a pastor. And my encouragement is to make sure that you're not drifting away from that. It's easy to be passionate about local issues. Don't let it drift you away from what you're actually supposed to be doing. Shepherding the flock of God, growing into maturity. Gabe, thank you so much. This has been so helpful and encouraging, and uh, I'll just encourage our listeners to uh, to abide in Christ. And as you abide in Christ, uh, you will seek to love God and to love your neighbor. And that's, re- that's really what this comes down to, is living a life of, of love. Uh, you've been loved by God, now you go out and love your neighbor, uh, no matter what their background, and, uh, and spending time with people uh, who aren't exactly like you uh, is only going to help you to grow to love them more and for them to love you more and uh, really you know, that's that's that can't be legislated um, though there are times need and the need for legislation uh, where there is injustice uh, we know that ultimately Lord our heart our, that our hearts have to be changed and so that'll be that'll happen in Christ as we abide in him Gabe thank you so much for your uh, openness and willingness to talk about uh, uh, these these uh, tough issues, but uh, we're thankful, and uh, we're thankful for you, our listeners. I think we're up to uh, eleven now, Ross. Uh, I heard are we, we okay? Yeah, we got one more listener. <laughs> we have a listener out in Iowa somewhere. That, uh, <laughs> but uh, we're we're glad you could be with us today, and we hope you'll join us next time on Between the Times. <laughs>